0: Hi, it's Jesse, the founder of Max Fun, coming to you from the microphone at my home office where I am socially segregating. So we promised you a Max MaxFun drive this week, but things haven't exactly gone how we expected. So given the pandemic, we're going to postpone this year's drive. Uh, events are still fluid, so we're hesitant to give you specifics about new dates. Right now, we have late April penciled into our calendars. We'll keep you posted about that. As it stands, a lot of our drive machinery was already cranked up. So for one thing, you might hear a reference or two to the drive in our shows, which might have been recorded before we made this decision. And uh, here is some good news. There's a bunch of great bonus content available for all of our Max Fund members. If you're a member and you missed the email with instructions on how to listen, check your spam folder or log in at MaximumFund.org manage. Uh, also at MaximumFund.org manage, you can change your membership if your circumstances have changed. We know this is a tough time for a lot of people and we understand. You can also go to MaximumFun.org slash join at any time if you'd like to become a member. During the next couple of weeks, what would have been the drive, we're going to do our best to be extra available to you. Uh, we've got some streaming events planned, some social media stuff. We know a lot of folks are isolated right now, and we want to help provide comfort in the best ways that we know how. You can follow us on social media, and we'll let you know what's up. During this tough time, I have been feeling really grateful for my community of colleagues here at MaxFun and for you, the folks who make our work possible, goofy as that work may sometimes be. Stay safe out there. We're thinking of you. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Before we get into our next interview, a quick warning. There is some talk in it about anti-Semitism, and we wanted to give you a heads up about that now. Towards the end of his career, Philip Roth, the novelist, wrote a book called The Plot Against America, It was set in the beginning of the 1940s. The world is in turmoil. The Holocaust is getting into full swing in Europe. Japan has invaded China, and the United States is about to pick a president. Franklin D. Roosevelt is seeking an unprecedented third term, but he's facing a real threat. Charles Lindbergh, the famed aviator and outspoken isolationist, is, in Roth's narrative, making a play for the White House. He's dropping anti-Semitic dog whistles, and his pitch against war in Europe is starting to resonate. The book was praised when it was released, in part because in it, Roth tells mostly small stories. He talks about families, their jobs, how people get by, how their relationships with their neighbors change, sometimes for the better, some for the much, much worse. The flag doesn't change into a swastika. There aren't any Jewish concentration camps on American soil. Roth's point was, I guessed, that things don't need to change that much for the world to change a lot. So HBO just launched a TV show based on the book, and they found maybe the perfect showrunner for it. My guest, David Simon. In small moments, small stories, like in the book, are Simon's bread and butter. Simon is, of course, the creator of The Wire, one of the greatest TV shows of all time. He also made Treme, Show Me a Hero, The Deuce, and he wrote for Homicide, Life on the Street. All of those shows tell stories about people and the dysfunctional systems in which they work. I want to play a little bit from the plot against America before we get into our interview. This scene features one of the main characters, a Jewish-American man named Herman Levin, played by Morgan Spector. Herman's talking to a friend at a movie theater about the news. I still can't get over the fact that France fell apart in only six weeks. Germans know how to make war. You read the Star-Ledger today? About Wheeler and the Republicans recruiting Lindbergh to run? Yeah, he's tapped into something. Maybe not around here, but I'm in the goyim.
1: Did you read the Roper poll? 39% say Jews are like other people. 53% 53% say we're different and should be, quote, restricted, unquote. That much? 10% say we should be deported.
0: And that, my friend, is a lot of kindling.
1: Lindbergh, if he runs, could be the spark.
0: David Simon, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start with a, a broad question, but um, I couldn't figure out how to ask it more specifically. What is your relationship to your Judaism? <laughs> Well, I'm mostly secular, but uh, I'm, I'm
1: familiar with the religious observances. If I find myself in a shul, uh, I know the liturgy. Uh, I was bar mitzvahed. My kids are bar mitzvahed. You know, I, I, I don't believe in God. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more of one of those Jews who uh, are locked in because
0: of ancestor worship.
1: Mostly my life is very secular. <laughs>
0: Why did you make sure to bar mitzvah your kids uh if you don't believe in god what 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 was the meaning for you um and for your kids for that pe- matter peoplehood,
1: ancestor worship I did this, my father did this, his father did this you know it's uh a lot of this is i think rooted in in a sense of uh of the world wanting us not to be around. It's not a very good reason to continue. I know is is to be arguing the negative, but you know when I was I grew up in the wake of the Holocaust, and and it was often said not to give Hitler any posthumous victories. That you know to walk away from the faith or from the or from the peoplehood aspect of being Jewish was an affront uh, historically. That it not end with with the generation uh, of which you were a part. I'm not sure that conveys over time. I'm not sure that that without some other greater sense of Jewish identity, I have the right recipe for for uh, Judaism. I, in fact, I'm pretty sure I don't. But I, I've had a hard time with the idea of um, of God, or and certainly of chosenness. I'm definitely with Spinoza. You know, uh, you'd have to you know you'd have to get the same bet din to excommunicate me if you're gonna if you're gonna hang me up on chosenness. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the aspects of you know I, I, you know I don't keep kosher I don't you know I'm I'm probably not so good at keeping the sabbath but um but I do feel very jewish
0: What are the things that you like about being jewish
1: I like the uh I like the levels of tolerance and the capacity for dissent within the the faith you don't have to believe in god to be Jewish, in my estimation, obviously, you have to do a lot of things to be Jewish in an Orthodox estimation, and I could get in any number of arguments with the Orthodox, uh, and I probably would if if they wanted to bother with me. Uh, but to them, I'm probably not Jewish. But to other Jews and to to you know the people who I um, regard as 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 my uh, my co-religionists, you know in 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 conservative Judaism or or, or Reformed Judaism, all of my uh, all of my uh, falling away, all of my lapses, all of my questioning of of, of the Deist aspect of the relationship uh, of Judaism of you know, the man and God thing doesn't necessarily kick me out of the kick me out of the tribe. I think you know I, I really enjoy the the capacity for argument and debate and rhetoric. That Jews bring to the world, and then there's the humor, which you know we do pretty well. And uh, then it's the familial stories, you know, it's it's um, it's the things I remember of my father and my grandparents, and you know,
0: peoplehood. You were born in 1960. How did the folks in your family who were alive in the 1930s and 40s? talk about them in your house when you were a kid? Um,
1: well, I mean, to go to this current project that I'm on, my father told me uh, many times, he told to me told me the story several times, one of his earliest memories. He was born in 1920 in Jersey City. And uh, he remembers um, his father, my grandfather, taking him on the tube train when he was seven years old over to lower Manhattan to stand on Broadway. And he was on his uh, he saw my grandfather's shoulders to see Lindbergh come down Broadway uh, in the ticker tape parade and he remembers cheering for Lindbergh as one of the greatest heroes he'd ever seen or experienced in his life and then of course you 12-13 know, years later he was a student at NYU and Lindbergh had turned himself into one of the great villains in Jewish American life which is to say he had embraced uh, a pro-fascist isolationist and overtly anti-semitic stance and uh the the astonishment at seeing of seeing somebody who was so much a hero be transformed you know at the at the edge of this terrifying moment in europe uh stayed with him it was uh it was it was a profound memory for my father i guess in a more general sense they remember the gathering storm and not not really even knowing how far it was going to go. I don't think anybody anticipated mass extermination or, or the technology of the death camps. I mean, that, that stuff came out. Uh, the sheer scope of it became more known to the general population at the end of the war. But obviously, there was a, an awareness of which which branches of our family had not gotten out of Europe and which we lost track of. And there was... Uh, there was certainly an awareness that the doors were closing on, on European Jewry and that, um, something awful was happening.
0: Did your family, especially your parents' generation, like being American and identify deeply as American? Utterly, utterly. We were Americans
1: in every fundamental way. Um, and I think in, in, to an extent, by the end of their lives all of my grandparents felt distinctly american you know, they they were the ones who they were the ones who arrived here as immigrants my grandparents i have some great grandparents who made the trip after their kids and who died in this country and you, you know i can't speak to them i mean you know some of them you know i know i had a i have a great grandfather who never spoke english you know i, he, I think he was you know he never worked in this country he was he 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 lived out his last years in this country, you know dovening on the porch and, and reading the yiddish newspaper and I'm not sure what he felt but I would say even my grandparents felt distinctly American once they had once they'd maneuvered their way into uh, into the culture and into the and into the society
0: did you in in your lifetime ever feel like your Americanness was questioned because of your Judaism. Did you ever feel like you had been made to be an outsider in the country in which you were born because of your cultural background? Only in the political rhetoric of people on the extreme right.
1: I mean it's happened as a matter of routine on the internet, but there you're exposing yourself to all gradations of white nationalism and racism and anti-Semitism. I mean, there's an extremity in this country that uh, will engage in that privately, and they'll you know now that they have an anonymous uh, tool of social engagement, they'll do it online. Do I feel as if it actually threatens my own sense of myself as an American?
0: No, I do not. You were a newspaper reporter for many years before you became a television writer. When you were a newspaper reporter, did the idea of working in another medium ever occur to you? No. I thought I was good. Uh, Books. I mean, I thought I would be working in
1: prose as well, but it was an extension of journalism. I thought I would be a newspaperman and I would be going out on these uh, books where I would spend... A certain amount of time in certain in certain places or in, uh, inside certain institutions, and I would write process books. Uh, and I did two of those
0: in my career, and then somehow I stumbled into uh, television writing. One of the interesting things to me about journalism, and especially like daily newspaper journalism, which is what you mostly worked in, is that you know you, you have to kind of gather enough information to see the bones of a narrative so that you can, you know, pitch it to an editor and and get it assigned and, and go out and work on it. But when you go out and work on it, you have to be open to the idea that the story is actually a very different story from the one that you imagined when you pitched it to somebody. That's right. I wonder if there was a time when you thought you had one story and found out that you had a very different story. I'll sort of up that ante a little bit and say some
1: of the moments I'm most proud of in journalism involved standing around with good editors and acknowledging that while we had what seemed to be a good story and what seemed to be a provocative story and what's, you know, maybe it's even a story with a good guy and a bad guy, if we pull on this one thread, if we we look at this one sentence in the fourth graph and we ask ourselves two more questions and we go out and answer those questions with reporting, you watch the entire story fall apart. The premise of the story would actually fall apart and you'd realize we've slated 30 inches for Sunday and we really don't have the story we think we have. And some of the most responsible moments I, I was involved with were moments where you would end up spiking a story, where you wouldn't run it because you came to understand that you know, your singular view of what was true was way more complicated and that you know you either had to do more reporting and figure out what the story was. Or you had to admit that the, what you thought was news here was not news. And um, it's so counterintuitive. You know, there's such a pressure to publish and to, and, to, and to validate the hours that you spend on something that, that there was something incredibly ethical about being part of a conversation that ended up spiking a story because the story wasn't good enough or because the story had problems. One of the best editors I knew, it was said of him, he, he can send a story to the Metro Advance you know, to, the, to the kill file. So fast it'll make your head spin. You know, with three questions, he can knock your story down. And it was said as a joke, you know, because obviously that, that's not the only skill set you need to be a newspaper editor, but but there was an ethic to what we wouldn't run. And of course, there's nothing like that with the internet now. You know, as soon as somebody thinks they know something, it's published.
0: When you became a TV writer, you got involved in a very different kind of storytelling where you you know when you're writing television you don't have you may have fealty to the capital T truth or responsibility to the capital T truth but you you are you are absolved of responsibility to the lowercase T truth because you're making fiction what did you have to learn when you got you know when you got assigned an episode and when you first became a staff writer about what makes television work relative to what makes a you know a similar narrative in mm-hmm. a newspaper work?
1: Television is just drama, or it is when it works, I guess. When I was hired to start writing episodes of a te- of a television show that was based on a, on a nonfiction book of mine, I didn't have to learn the milieu because I'd written the book, so I had that you know I didn't have to do any research into what I was writing about. In fact, I I sort of walked into the that writer's room and I became. Uh, an easy resource for uh, any technical questions that came up. You know, anybody wanted to ask me anything about, a, you know, a, a, a barium and antimony test. Uh, you know, for gunshot residue or, or what was probable cause or, you know, how does an autopsy work? Like, I, I, you know, I'd spent a year in a homicide unit, so I could I could answer those questions. What I had to learn was drama. I, you know, I think the thing, first thing they did was they said read plays. You know, do you go to the theater? Do you, you know, how much are you, how familiar are you with drama? And I had gone to the theater a lot. I, I enjoyed the theater. I, I had tickets to the uh, Shakespeare Theater in D.C. And I'd seen a lot of stuff on stage in Baltimore. And I, I you know, I just, I enjoyed it for just enjoying it. Uh, but I hadn't made any kind of system, systemic study on it. But I remember Jimmy Oshemira pressing um, two books in my hand, uh, Pirandelli and uh, O'Neill. Uh, uh, no, uh, Chekhov and, um, telling me, read these plays if you haven't read them. And by the way, if they come around see him on the, on stage and he wasn't wrong. I mean, you know, it, it sounds a little bit, uh, highfalutin since we were writing a network t- TV show, but all the guys I worked with were playwrights. They were people who had had their plays produced and, you know, um, I mean, Jim Eric Overmeyer, Tom Fontana they were telling me you have a different job now you're a dramatist try to you know try to try to think about what you're doing and so the pacing was different and dialogue mattered intensely and every line had to justify itself and there was a whole new vernacular to learn never mind the camera and and the actual technocracy of you know putting film in the can you know that was it was much longer before i learned that but first thing i had to learn was how to write a script and i certainly didn't have the pacing correct at first
0: We'll wrap up with David Simon after a quick break. Still to come, he'll tell me about one of the most unique challenges he encountered when he was making The Wire. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. All that data collection. They have the last 10 years of your movements. It can have real-life consequences. And if you have that
1: much information, that information is going to be misused. I'm Manoush Zamarodi and who decides what's right or wrong in our digital world? That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Subscribe or listen now.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Simon. He is, of course, the creator of The Wire, The Deuce, and other television shows— His new show is called The Plot Against America. It's set in the 1940s and imagines an America where the aviator Charles Lindbergh, an isolationist and Nazi sympathizer, runs for president against Franklin D. Roosevelt. It's airing on HBO now. Let's get back into our conversation. There's a book about The Wire uh, that's really great. Like The idea that a TV tie-in book would be really good is a strange one. Uh, but the, the Wire book, which came out just, I think, maybe, what, like two years into the run or three years into the run, in, in the middle of the run, is, is really great. And one of the things that it, it reproduces is some of the arguments that you made on behalf of the show to HBO. And they're, they're like, incredibly forceful but not, uh, none of them are like whiny, you know what I mean? I was trying to think of a classier way to say that, but I failed, none of them are like whiny, they're just, uh, they're really clear. And it's obvious that you had that you had created that show with a very specific aims in mind. Having worked on Homicide Life on the Streets, which was one of the best, police television shows that had existed to the point that The Wire was created. What did you want The Wire to be that couldn't be done on NYPD Blue or Homicide or Dragnet?
1: Well, I wanted it to be much darker because I wanted to attack the drug war as being a dysfunctional um, policy that had done so much to destroy urban society, nothing less than urban society. I think it's, you know, to this moment, I think it's one of the most singular policy disasters in the history of the country. Um, So I wanted to attack that, and to do that, I wanted to create a continuing narrative, which meant, first of all, if it's on cable, and I learned this from watching Tom's earlier show, Oz, Tom Fontana put Oz on HBO and HBO led him and it was such an extraordinarily dark show, you know a show about a, a a maximum security prison that I thought, well, my God, if they'll put that on the air, they'll put anything on the air. So I mean, the first thing I did was I, I did a mini series based on my second book, The Corner, which is about a year on in an open air drug market in West
0: Baltimore, a nonfiction book. And um did you pitch that series with, hey guys, if if you'll make Oz, you'll put anything on the air. <laughs> I I don't think I had to
1: say that sentence because clearly they were going to counter program network television. That was their intent. I mean, they were already in that business. Oz was in evidence. In fact, I I offered to do it with Tom, and and for whatever reason, uh, Tom sent me in there alone. And so it sold as a miniseries, and I went to work on the scripts involving that book. And once I'd seen that, first of all, you 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 didn't have to tell a tale that was full of redemption and made people feel good. Every 13 minutes, so that they would you know go to the commercials and buy um, you know, uh, Lincoln's and iPods and Blue Jeans and whatever else, the advertisers were not there to be appeased. There were no advertisers. You know Cable offered something very different, which is, we don't have to tell a story that makes audiences happy at the end and puts them in a buying mood. We can maintain an audience base by counter-programming network television. So we don't need so much redemption and so much humor and so much, you know, and people are not gonna walk away from the television set if they can watch it three or four times, you know, okay, you can't get it on Sunday night, maybe you catch it on Wednesday or, or you know. Suddenly there was a, a vehicle that could deliver a darker image and a, and a darker narrative. And that was important because that's all I had to say. It was that I was trained as a journalist and I was interested in writing political drama, you know, drama that has a political purpose or a political argument or or is steeped in, steeped in in the issue it's dealing with. And finally, there was a vehicle on television where you could do some grown-up stuff, you know. It it was, the the medium I think in some ways matured when they got rid of the advertisers on premium cable. And so that was the one thing that I understood going in with The Wire was if, you know, if they'll give me the room, I can tell something really long, really ornate, it can have sub-themes, and people will find it and maybe not everybody but enough people will find it so maybe they'll let me keep doing it
0: i remember when the show was starting to get the recognition that it deserved which didn't really happen until later in its run and and frankly only only happened partially even then i remember hearing a lot of people talking about omar the the character who was a stick-up man who robbed drug dealers and Brother Muzone, a character who was sort of like uh, if a, a fantastical version of a of a member of the Fruit of Islam was also a contract killer and how much they loved them. And I remember thinking it was interesting that it was the characters, it was those characters who were kind of the biggest... Uh, and the ones who were closest to characters in like a Western or an opera or something else that is, um, you know, that is not afraid to be grand who resonated with people the most. I don't know if that was, if that's true to your experience, (laughs) you've had probably a lot more people talk to you about the wire than I have, but, uh, if it is like, how did it feel at the time? What what did you think of that? Yeah, I mean they were they were gunslingers, so that resonates
1: pretty well with an American audience. They were sort of loosely based on on real people, on real stories. Omar is based on a, a couple of guys: Donnie Anders, Ferdinand Harvin, um, Shorty Boyd, people who robbed drug dealers in Baltimore who were known. You know, many of them known personally to my writing partner Ed Burns. I knew, I knew Donnie Anders for uh, the last part of his life. And then Brother Muzon was based on a guy named Vernon Collins, who um had a uh, Muslim name. He I don't know if I think he joined the Nation of Islam when he was in prison and he embraced the identity, but I don't think he was actually active. But he had the vibe of being I mean, I think he he embraced he he, he went to the nation when he was in prison. I don't think he stayed with them in any really orthodox way. But he emerged on the street as a, um, as a presence with some uh, sort of uh, NOI vibe to him, even if it wasn't legitimate.
0: What's a particularly difficult challenge that you took on, on one of the shows that you've created since then that you're proud of how you managed?
1: Well, the one we have out now, uh... Plot Against America, I feel like we took a novel that was written by Philip Roth um, in which uh, it's the memories of his 10-year-old s- self uh, translated through uh, that child having grown to adulthood, remembering his childhood uh, and remembering an alternate history of America uh, from the 1940s of his family and, and the trauma they experience when uh, America takes a dry run of fascism. It's a, it's a complicated piece, and of course, doing the point of view of a 10-year-old child later on as perceived by that child all grown up, you're either going to have to do yards of voiceover, uh, or that child is going to have to expo- ex- be exposed not just to dinner table talk about what happened, which is the way it is in the book, but rather has to be there, has to be physically there for far too much of the history and the going's on. So we had to expand uh, to six characters. Uh, not all of whom certainly n- none of whom had point of view in the novel and and we had to create scenes in a Philip Roth book, you know, by this this giant of literature that didn't exist. And so we were um you know, we're a couple of television hacks, Ed Burns, Rena Rexroad myself, we're um we're sitting there trying to write our way past the pages of a literary lions novel and not fall on our ass. I mean, on some very basic level, if that's not ambition for some television writers, I don't know what is. Um, Expanding that book uh, required a lot of thought and a lot of
0: characterization and, and a certain amount of risk. Do you still have the instinct when you're writing television, which you've been doing for, you know, 20 plus years now uh, to be a reporter, to go ask questions and find something concrete that you can yes. hang your fiction on?
1: Yes, I, I, spent, I began the day interviewing somebody about something on a story. They were a participant in something that happened six years ago. Uh, I finally caught up with them. I was able to sit down. I was able to start asking questions. Uh, start formulating where the narrative might take us if we incorporated this person as part of the story for a a miniseries that may or may not get made. That was the beginning of my day, was was that interview. So, yeah, uh, at at some point, everything begins with trying to find the source material and surround it.
0: David Simon, I'm so grateful to you for coming on Bullseye and... I so love and admire your work and have for so many years. And I, I hope you'll come back again sometime. I, I'm, re- I'm really thankful. Thank you. Thank you for the attention. David Simon, The Plot Against America is his great new show. You can catch it right now on HBO. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park, beautiful los angeles california where macarthur park lake is overflowing from the recent rains and overflowing with fish we saw somebody out the window catch a very big carp the show is produced by speaking into microphones our producer is kevin ferguson jesus ambrosio is our associate producer we have help from casey o'brien our production fellow is jordan cowling Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And we have decades of interviews in our archives available to you. If you love The Wire, for example, uh, we've had a number of people on Bullseye from that show. Uh, Michael K. Williams, who played Omar, was uh, a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Uh, once, when The Wire was still on TV, Wendell Pierce and Andre Royo, who played Bunk and Bubbles on the show, came over to my apartment for an interview back in the days when I made the show at my apartment. We even had Aidan Gillen, uh, Mayor Tommy Carcetti himself, uh, on the show. You can find all those on our website, MaximumFun.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.